Good morning. Those uh, two through four-year-olds headed to Toddler Nursery and Children's Church, you're dismissed. Those adults going with them can help them along. Those who are going to remain here in the sanctuary, if you would please turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 20. Psalm 20. Continuing our Songs for Our Savior series, Psalm 20. Beginning in verse 1, for the choir director, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offering acceptable. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire. And fulfill all your counsel. We will sing for joy over your victory. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses. But we will boast in the name of the Lord, our God. They have bowed down and fallen. But we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord, may the king answer us in the day that we call. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its truthfulness. Father, thank you for the way it encourages us. Father, help us this morning as we study your word together. To see the compassion and the kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ toward us. We ask this in his name. Amen. This morning, Jesus, our answer in times of trouble. So just a a quick interactive quiz this morning. Just to make sure that the sermon is going to be worthwhile. And is actually going to meet everybody where they are. So show of hands. Don't be embarrassed. All your neighbors are going to do it with you. Have you ever experienced a time of trouble? If you have, raise your hand, please. Okay, there's a couple of you who've never... Keep them up, keep them up. There's a couple of you who have never experienced trouble. Please meet me after the service. I want to know the secret of your success. That's amazing. Keep them up, keep them up, keep them up. All right, so those handful of you who've never experienced a time of trouble, those who are remaining, have you ever been anxious or worried or distressed about anything at any point in your life? And if you have your hands up over the one about trouble and you've done those things, just raise it a little higher. All right. OK, good. We finally got everybody. All right. So this sermon this morning is for you and for me. Notice what it says in verse one. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. This should resonate with everyone. None of us, by our own admission just now in our fun little pop quiz, none of us have been exempt from the day of trouble. We just haven't been. Now, I like this word trouble. In the Hebrew, this word can mean a few different things. It can clearly mean trouble as we translate it here in the English. But it can also carry with it the idea of need, distress, or even anxiety. May the Lord, let's just kind of roll through the translation with the other styles there. May the Lord answer you in the day of your need. May the Lord answer you in your day of distress. 
May the Lord answer you in your day of anxiety. Isn't that kind of God to do that for us? Amen. Notice the the use of this word that has so many different kinds of meanings. In other words, whatever sort of trouble it is that you may be facing, may the Lord answer you in the day of that. Emotional distress, financial distress, physical distress, relational distress, political distress, worry, fear, doubt. May the Lord answer you in that day. And what is the answer that God gives to us here in the second half of verse 1 and moving into verse 2? May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. Now, commentators differ on what you should do with what I'm about to do. So just know that you'll be able to very easily find people who disagree with what I'm about to do here, and that's fine. But there's times in the Old Testament where it says the God of Israel. And there's times in the Old Testament where it says the God of Jacob. Same guy. Same guy. But there's a huge difference between Israel and Jacob, even though it's the same guy. When we think about him, when his name became Israel, what do we think? He's confident in the Lord. He claims him as his own. He's confident before the Pharaoh. He's blessed with his children. He finds out that his son's still alive, etc., etc., etc. We can run through all these things. When he's Jacob, what do we think of him? What do we know of him? He hasn't owned his faith. He's kind of a scoundrel, (laughs) if we're just going to be honest. (laughs) He's not really a model citizen of the kingdom of God. I like to think that those who are authoring the Old Testament knew what they were doing when they picked one name over the other to make the point that they're trying to make. If you're going to talk about stress and anxiety and a day of trouble, do you know who you need to talk about? You need to talk about Jacob. Because he had all that stuff going. And God is not just the God of Israel, the one whose name's been changed and he's wrestled with God and he's owned his faith and he securely stands before Pharaoh and he's blessed to have all of his children around him when he's about to die and everything is exactly the way that it seems like it needs to be and all his provisions have been met during the famine that's uh, wreaking havoc around the rest of the world and his family gets to be taken care of and they get to leave the land and they get to go to Egypt and they get to have the choicest things of Pharaoh's house because his son has risen to a great place politically where he can help take care of his family. No, 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 no. God is not just the God of Israel. He's also the God of Jacob who runs in fear from his life from his brother. And he doesn't know for sure if he's going to survive. And his life is caving in on itself. And he's deceitful. And he's been deceived. And his life is just full of stress and anxiety and fear and worry. God is also the God of that God. And what does God do for a person like that? He sets you securely on high. That's positional. That's a military language. 
He gives you in the battle against your trouble and the battle against your need and the battle against your distress and the battle against your anxiety. He gives you the high ground. And anyone who's ever been involved in or studied military strategy knows you want the high ground. That's what you want. And God himself sets you securely on high. He puts you in a position to have victory. Victory over what? Over your trouble, your need, your distress, your anxiety. It's something that God does for you. What else does he do? It says here in verse two, may he send you help from the sanctuary. God supplies all of your spiritual needs. I've said this before and I'll say it again. I don't know how many people I've sat across the desk from over the years going through troubling and difficult times and we go to the word and we start walking through the word and we start challenging bad thoughts and we start challenging bad choices and we start challenging bad decisions and we start challenging difficult circumstances. We start challenging a frowning providence and we start walking through what it needs to look like from the inside out from a spiritual perspective. And then they come back a few weeks later and they say, none of it's worked. I'm still just as distressed and depressed and anxious and frustrated and fearful, whatever, fill in the blank, as I was a few weeks ago. None of it works. Friends, counseling never works if you don't work the counsel. God has supplied all of your spiritual needs. He's given you his word. He's given you his people. He's given you corporate worship. He's given you public and private prayer. He's given you all manner of means of grace that the, that the Holy Spirit can use to conform your life into the image of Jesus. May he help you from his sanctuary. But that's not all. Not only does he positionally place you on the high ground that you might have victory. And not only does he supply for you all of your spiritual needs, but he also here. Notice what it says. May he support you. Verse two into verse two from Zion. That idea of supporting you from Zion is the concept of citizenship. You were a citizen of the city of man. And as such, you were to receive no help from the one that you were at enmity with, namely the father in heaven who reigns over Zion. But now you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and you've been carried into the kingdom of his beloved son to make known the excellencies of the one who delivered you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And now you have citizenship seated at the table, feasting with the Lord, seated on a throne with Christ, clothed in his righteousness, crowned with his glory, called his child. Jesus is your brother and the spirit himself is the down payment of your inheritance of this kingdom. He sends you support from Zion. Okay. In the day of your anxiety, of your need, of your distress, of your trouble. This is what God has already done for you in Christ Jesus. It's not something you have to wait for him to do for you. 
when the troubled day comes, you have already been set on high. You have already received help from the sanctuary. You have already received support from Zion because you already are in Christ Jesus. You don't have to wait for God to do these things. God has already done them. Why? Notice what it says in verse 3. May he remember all of your meal offerings and find your burnt offering acceptable. This is a picture of worship in the Old Testament, particularly the worship of forgiveness, the worship of right relationship with God. The idea of the burnt offering is the idea of the sin offering. The idea of the meal offering is a relational offering to the Lord. You have been forgiven. Your sins have been covered. And you now have a right standing with God. You worship Him rightly. You stand with Him rightly because of the work that Christ Jesus has done on your behalf. God calls to mind the work of Christ. And when He sees you in the day of trouble, He sees Christ Jesus. And He never will forsake His Son. All of the help All of the love, all of the connectivity that the Father has with the Son, according to the high priestly prayer of John 17, is now ours currently. Jesus himself prayed, God, may you love them with the same love with which you love me. That's what Jesus has done for us. We have a right standing before God That he will never abandon because it is locked in through the blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, it's already yours. You don't have to wait for it. If you've repented of your sins and believed on Christ, it is yours in your day of trouble. Already, right now, life abundantly. And so then David makes this odd transition in verse 4. He begins speaking about a heart's desire. And he says, may he, God, grant you your heart's desire. And I know what's happening in the room right now. Everybody who has a really strong sense of total human depravity is looking at this going, that has to be a typo. I've heard my whole life, at least from reform preacher guys, that my heart is desperately wicked and sick above all things, and that I should never listen to my heart, and that my heart will just lead me astray, and that my heart will lie to me and convince me to do horrible things, and that I have to just really cultivate my brain to make sure that I walk rightly with God. You really think your brain is any less susceptible to lying and sin than your heart is? By the way, I just want to throw that out there. It's funny to me that some people in the reform camp actually only believe in partial depravity because they think somehow their brain is exempt from the depravity of sin that came to us from Adam. Can't say amen, say ouch. That's just how it is. Here's the deal. There's several times in the Psalms where David says, God will give you the desire of your hearts and it's a good thing, not a bad thing. And that's hard for us to process sometimes if we really have a robust view of human sinfulness. But friends, let me tell you, this is in a context of what we just saw before. 
And what we just saw before is a person who's forgiven, a person who's standing rightly with God, a person who's walking rightly with God, a person who's been set securely on high and has received help from the sanctuary and has received support from Zion. This person is dwelling with the most high God. And friends, hear me this morning. And you can cross reference on 37. It also talks about this. If we are walking rightly with the Lord, our desire should be the same as his desire. And so, of course, God will give us the desire of our heart because our heart will be longing for what God's heart longs for. I had a professor a bunch, a bunch of years ago. God rest his soul. He is, his faith has become sight. Now, Dr. Steve Wilkes, great man of God. And we were sitting around one time and I was having to make a big decision. There were a couple of churches that I was talking to about a a church job and I didn't know what I should do. And they were both great churches and they both had a lot of upside. And and so he looked at me and he said, he said, Philip, do you have any secret sin that you're covering up right now in your life? Like you got something going on that nobody knows about and you're justifying it and you're trying to hide it from everybody. It's like, no, I don't have anything like that going on. He said, in the sins that you are aware of in your life that you're struggling with, are you actively in a state of repentance and you're trying to make sure that you're held accountable for that? You're trying to make sure that you're walking away from those things, that you're turning your back on them and turning your heart and your mind toward Christ. I said, yes, I'm trying to walk faithfully with the Lord and live a life of repentance and faith uh, the best I can through the help of the spirit who dwells within me. He said, he said, well, then if you're walking with the Lord and you're in a state of repentance and faith, then I tell you what. Instead of agonizing over what you should do, just do whatever you want to do. I say, wait, what? That can't be the right answer. Psalm 37. And then he also pointed to this psalm. He said, delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Said, are you delighting yourself in the Lord? I said, yeah. He said, well, then which one do you want to go work for? Just go work for that one. I said, it can't be this easy. Like, really, it can't be this simple. He said, it is. He said, you believe God's sovereign, right? I said, I absolutely do. He said, well, then go do the one you want to do and trust that if that's not the one God wanted you to do, he won't let you go do it. Wait, what? Is life really this easy? Have I been agonizing over all these decisions my whole life and it's really been this simple the whole time? Just delight yourself in God, love God, live a life of repentance. And then when awesome things get presented in front of you, just pick the one you want to do and trust God won't let you do it if he doesn't want you to do it. Really, is it that he, friends, it's been so liberating ever since. So liberating. This can't be right. No, this is absolutely right. When we are walking rightly with God, Our heart's desire is his heart's desire. We long for the things that God longs for. We long for the gospel to be made known. Christ to be made much of. For sacrificial love to take place. For there to be compassion and mercy and kindness. For there to be justice. We long for displays of righteousness. We long for the things God longs for. And friend, in the day of your anxiety, in the day of your trouble, in the day of your distress, often those days are brought on us by crippling and debilitating inabilities to make choices and decisions. I don't want to miss the will of God. 
As if God is some superiorly weak being who needs for us to make all of the exact right decisions all the time or his whole plan from eternity past gets wrecked. What kind of God is that? Not the God that I read about in the Bible. And we bring a lot of trouble and anxiety and distress unnecessarily on ourselves by making God small and by making us big. When in fact we should elevate the glorious position of God, walk rightly with him and then understand when we're doing that, his desire is my desire and I will trust him. I won't worry. This is why the Bible on just about every other page. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. Why? Because that's what we do. We all get an A plus in being afraid and worrying about stuff. And we put on a good face and we posture. I'm not afraid of anything. Sure. We're stressed out all the time about everything, if we're honest. Why? Because we're absolutely not in control of any of it. And that terrifies us. But if I exalt the Lord, make much of him and his glory. And my heart's desire becomes his heart's desire. Guess what? If you want what God wants, you get it. <laughs> I just don't feel like God ever says yes to any of my prayers. Well, maybe because you're praying for a bunch of stuff God doesn't want you to have. It's really simple. The Bible actually lists out a whole bunch of stuff that God says he'll give us. Start praying for that stuff. You get a bunch of yeses. I want to be broken over my sin and I want to be humbled and I want to. Oh, wait, that's right. That stuff's not exciting. That's kind of painful from time to time. He'll give you the desire of your heart. Fulfill all of your own counsel. And what flows from that. Listen, friend, hear me. When you're in a day of trouble and you begin to acknowledge the position that you have in the Lord of being set on high and receiving help from his sanctuary and getting support from Zion because you've been forgiven in Christ. And now your heart's desire is God's heart's desire. What flows from that is worship, celebration and proclamation. Notice what happens in verse five. It says we will sing for joy over your victory. Another thing, when we come into the sanctuary together, when we come into this place as a congregation and we experience musical worship, there's a lot of bad reasons why we sing. A lot of bad reasons why we sing. But there are some really good biblical reasons why we sing. And one of them is, I will sing for joy over your victory. Jesus Christ has thrown down the powers and principalities. He's made a mockery of them on the cross and he has nailed the certificate of guilt to it and he has declared us redeemed and not guilty. I will sing for joy over your victory. Worship. Worship. Celebration. Notice what it says. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners in the Old Testament often, not always, but often when someone would set up a banner of war, one of two things was usually going on. Either they were uh, declaring war. Hey, 
this is the banner that we're going to, uh, to wage war under. Or they would set up a banner as a signpost of celebration of victory. We have won this area. We have won this battle. This is ours. It's not dissimilar to what happens in modern times where people are waging war with each other. There's no flag over a particular leadership point, a particular place, a particular stronghold. And then suddenly a nation's flag goes up and you know that nation has won that spot. It belongs to them now. They are celebrating the victory that they have. That's what we do, friends. When we come together, we're worshiping God and we're celebrating the victory he has won for us. The cross is our banner. It's a declaration that our lives have been won. We were in enemy territory and that territory has been redeemed by Christ Jesus. And then proclamation flows from that. May the Lord fulfill all of your petitions, all of the things that you call out for. The voice that you make known, the things that you make heard. May God fulfill these things. And then notice as it closes. So we're in this day of trouble and God has a great response for that. And there's a transition of our heart towards the desirous things of the Lord. And then notice in verses 6 through 9 what the, the, the commentary here is. The Lord saves Now, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Notice the transition of the psalmist. They went from being in a day of trouble to now acknowledging that they know that the Lord saves. The Lord saves his anointed. Now, who is his anointed? We have evidence that David was the anointed of the Lord. Talks about that. We have even more evidence that Jesus Christ is the true anointed. Lots of testimony about that in the New Testament. What's often missed, and it shouldn't be, is that we, as the body of Christ, are also the Lord's anointed. We are in Christ And he is in us. And as such, the Lord saves his anointed. He saves his people and delivers them from their sin. That's you and that's me. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The scripture says in both covenants. He puts you in his hand. And no one is able to snatch you out. And how does he do this? How does he save us? Notice what it says. In verse 6. He will answer him from his holy heaven. With the saving strength of his right Hand That saving strength, if you were to more literally translate it, it's the mighty deeds of the victory of his right hand. It's way bigger than that. And we've talked about it before. The Old Testament metaphor of the right hand of God is actually a picture of Jesus Christ. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, I have done these things. I, salvation is always coming from the right hand of God. Friends, salvation has come to us from heaven, from the 
mighty, victorious deeds of the right hand of God. Salvation has come to us from heaven through the mighty, victorious deeds of Jesus Christ. So where should our confidence be? Number seven. Where should our confidence be? Should it be in the supplies of our victory? Some boast in chariots, some boast in horses. Or should our confidence be in the giver of supplies? Because, friends, here's the thing. The victories that we have in life, they're they're never just us kind of sitting there and things just happen. There are supplies and there are efforts and there are strategies and there are things that are to be used. There's the word to be read and sermons to hear and songs to sing and counseling to go to and 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 wisdom to seek out and et cetera, et cetera. We can run through the list of all sorts of things in our day of trouble that we need and that we need to participate in. And so then what do we do at the end of it when these various gifts that God gives us delivers us from our day of trouble? Oh, I was saved by the reading of the book. I was saved by the wise counsel of a friend. No, that's the supplies. We don't boast in the supplies. We boast in the giver of supplies. Some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord, our God. I want you to notice something. Every time David went to battle, because there's people who try to take this and be like, see, we don't need any of that stuff. Just me and the Lord. Don't need any horses. Don't need any chariots. Just me and the Lord. Every time David went to battle, do you know what he went to battle with? Weapons. Horses. Fighters. Soldiers like he didn't just show up out there in the field, even when he fought Goliath, he still went and got a rock. I mean, not really the best battle plan, but God was on his side, you know. Even in some of the wild stories in the Old Testament, where it's like horns and jars and stuff, they still had horns and jars and stuff. I mean, it's still not the best battle plan, but they had stuff. When David went to fight, he went to fight with stuff. And when he won victories, he won victories with stuff. This is not to excuse away the use of stuff, which a lot of people try to do. No, 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 no. David still went to battle with weapons of war. But when he won, he never turned around and said, look at what a great fighter I am. Look how much great stuff we have. Look how superior our equipment was. No, he didn't do that. When he got done waging war and winning war, he said, thank you, God, for the victory. And so, friend, when you sit down in the word and you sit down across the table with counsel and you come to worship and you sing songs of praise and and you exercise means of grace and you seek wise counsel and you do all that you can to use the stuff that you need to use to help you overcome your day of trouble. When you come out on the other side, don't thank the things. Thank the giver of the things. Thank you, God, that you have supplied a way for me to no longer be in my day of trouble. And then he closes. There's a few different ways that this verse is translated. It makes it confusing to understand. One way is how it is here. Save, O Lord, and may the king, the idea of God being the king, Christ being the king, answer us in the day that we call. Some translations translate it, save the king and answer us. So I asked the question, all right, so what, what is David saying? Is he, is he wanting God to save the king? 
Is he wanting God to save us and the king to answer us? Yes. Remember, it's poetry. Great poetry intentionally is filled with vague language that creates double or triple meanings. That's great poetry. Great poetry. It is best and superior in every way when it does that. When you read it and you read it and you read it and you go, you know, it could mean two or three things. I'm not real sure which one it is. Probably they meant for it to mean all of them. That's the point of great poetry. So what is David saying here? God, I want you to save the king. You know what? I bet David is saying that. (laughs) He's the king. He's about to go to war. He's in a day of trouble. I want you to save the king. Uh, Yeah, I bet he does. I also want the Lord to just save. There's a plural here. I want him to save us. I want him to save his people. You know what? I bet David was praying that too. Singing that too. He wants all of the people to be delivered, to be saved. Remember David in the tender, most tender moments of his heart. He even wanted his enemies to be saved. He wanted Saul to be saved. He wanted others who opposed him and who wanted his life, who wanted him to die to still be saved. There is a robust longing from David for God's glory to manifest itself savingly among as many people as possible. And so when he calls out here and he says, save, O Lord. I'm not real sure that David's making a lot of discrimination there. He's longing for God to show himself glorious in the act of saving. And. He longs for a king. This is what I love about when David writes these psalms, how much he doesn't know what's going on even sometimes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He longs for a king that is not him to answer them in their day of trouble. David knows that he can go to war. David knows that he could pass an edict. David knows that he could pass a law. David knows that he can make a declaration. David is the king. And yet he cries out, may the king, who's not me, answer all of us, deliver all of us. May he hear us when we call him. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And his kingdom shall have no end. David was not that kind of king. Not even close. And when he was in his day of trouble... He needed a king that was altogether different from himself. And friends, hear me this morning. This is, this is exciting news. For the Christian, this is great news. We have that king. We're not waiting on that king. We're not waiting for him to become that king. We have that king. He has ascended 
into heaven. He is seated on his throne at the right hand of the father, making intercession for us. And he has made the declaration that we are now seated with him currently in heavenly places in Christ Jesus upon his throne. This is the king we have. And friend, whatever day of trouble you're facing, we all raised our hands at the beginning. Whatever you've gone through, whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, whatever sorrow is on your mind and your heart. Know that you have a king who will answer you. He will set you securely on high. He will send you help from the sanctuary. He will send you support from Zion and that help That high place, that sanctuary, that Zion, that citizenship is all found in the one true king, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that in Christ Jesus, we are set securely on high. Thank you that in Christ Jesus, you send us help. From your sanctuary. Thank you that in Christ Jesus. We receive support from Zion. Thank you that we have a king. Who hears us. And answers us. The one who supplies both the means to victory. And the victory itself. Father let our boasting. Be in the greatness of this king. King Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together.